This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora and welcome to Garden of Sound, sponsored by miniquiz.com. It's a very special Good Friday edition of the show as I talk to a stalwart of the Christchurch music scene, Arnie Van Bussel. This is part one of what will eventually become a two-part programme, and today we're going to cover everything up until the late 90s. While the name Arnie Van Bussel may not be immediately familiar, he has recorded countless bands and artists across the years, including The Exponents, Netherall Dancing Toys, Bick and Runger, Hayley Westenra, The Bats, Jason Kerrison, JPS Experience, The Feelers and many, many more, including yours truly. We'll leave that for another time. Life hasn't always been peachy for Arnie though, so if it's a musical fairy tale you're looking for, you should look elsewhere. Today's show is about where Arnie got his musical start and how Night Shift Studios came into being. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Arnie Van Bussel on Plains FM 96.9. Arnie, can you tell me the first time uh, you either heard music or... Well, that's easy. Yeah, my father, was, uh, my father worked at Phillips in Holland. And he was probably the first man on the block to own both a, a tape recorder and, and a television. Um, my father's an engineer, or was. He's gone now. Very good at, at his job. He was fond of photography and technical things. So he had a tape recorder, and he would record what was on the radio, all his favourite tunes, on tape. And I still remember those tunes, you know, when I, when I hear them, I could sing the, the melody lines. And, of course, my father played a, a mouth accordion. Mm-hmm. We just called it harp in the industry. Yeah, and, and he had his own way of playing it. I've still, I've actually got some video footage of him playing it. It's quite, mm-hmm. it's quite cute. There's music in the family and art too. My my uncles were one of my uncles, Uncle Martin was a, a very fine, natural artist. Oils. I've still got some of his paintings. When did you um, make your way to New Zealand? My parents decided to come over here on a scheme when I was about five, six years old. Mm-hmm. We arrived here in 1960. Mm-hmm. And they you know, they ride with three children and a hundred pounds, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't find a house in the beginning. That the government didn't really help them, so we ended up lodging with a few other Dutchies for a while. And then he found a job in Ashburton that came with a house. He was the maintenance engineer at the uh, Woolen Mill, and we were there for about six months until uh, he ran afoul of the the manager on site. There was an issue with some lodgers that were in the house. They were the young English girls that were cavorting at all hours of the night, and my father wasn't very happy on that about that. I asked the manager if he'd, you know, <laughs> say something. Do say something. something. Uh, uh, no, he tr- tried to strong arm my dad. Yeah, and you don't do that to my dad. No, He's, you know. Were you listening to uh, radio as a family when you came over? To well, New of course, he brought all the bits and pieces with him. So you know, yeah. It was primitive back then. We had what? How many radio stations did we have? About two. Two. Well, it was all part of the national broadcasting setup, and then later on the television kicked in as well. Um, but you know, back then we were making our own celebrities by by measure of the fact that we had infrastructure that was funded by the public. Mm-hmm. You know, the likes of your rock and roll stars. Yeah. Back then, it was all before my time, of course. You've got this love affair with tape. As you grow up, let's say. 
uh, early teens or thereabouts, what sort of stuff is you know, starting to get into Arnie's ears? Well, my parents made a pivotal decision. They, they decided to buy me a guitar. So okay. we'd, we'd moved away from Conway Street to a new house. Mm. It came along at, for 39 and sixpence. This guitar, I still got it in the cupboard. Um, and it came with four free lessons at Tom Carhey's guitar studio. So I wasn't just listening anymore. I was given an instrument that I could sort of fiddle with mm-hmm. and started writing straight away. Pretty okay. good. Writing songs. They were pretty primitive. But So how old were you at that stage? Oh, I would have been 13. 13. Okay, so that's like sort of that. normal. Early okay. teens. Yep. And uh, stuck with it. Tommy it was a mine of knowledge. He was yeah. amazing. And his brother Mark Carr, he was an amazing guitar player. He was. Uh, he studied under Segovia over in Spain, I think. They, you're invited to do that. You, you don't apply. You, you're invited. He was that good. I can still remember one night, Tommy said, what are you doing on Saturday night? I said, Tom, I'm 15, what am I doing on Saturday night? And he said, you're playing in my band. I said, what? He said, Mark's crook. I said, oh, you're kidding. (laughs) I can't fill his shoes. It's insane. He said, no, you just play the the Maori strum, you know, give you the chord sheets and away you go and... He would. He carried it. He was singing and and playing his guitar and playing his Hawaiian steel. He was amazing. Do you remember the venue? Um, there's a, there was a venue out by the airport. Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'll think of it in a minute. Yeah. And what sort of stuff were you playing? Was it all covers? Oh yeah, of course. Yep. Back then it was all dance music. Yep. So you know the Gypsy Taps and the Foxtrots and the Boston Two Steps and all that stuff. Because that's what he was teaching us too on guitar. How to strum properly, how to read the notes on the page, yeah, um, pick the melody line, and so forth and so on. So, did you have something cemented in your mind as to what you wanted to do? You know, you you loved you loved listening, you loved playing. Oh, it really didn't come until we till he put us in a band together. Yeah. When you get to the end of your tenure, he he suggests things, you know, and she said, "Look, I'll tell you what, I'll get three years lined up together and." We'll sit you together as a group. There's another guy who does that, Clary Light. He's still doing it. Um, just puts them together in little bands. Yeah. So we needed a drummer and a bass player. So we went to, I think it was Leon Jayett's drum studio and found a drummer there. His name was Paul. Mm-hmm. And we needed a bass player. And my brother Peter wasn't doing a lot. And I said to Pete, I said, do you want to play bass in my band? You know. And he said, I can't play anything. He said, well, bass is not that hard. Away you go. So we bought him a bass and hey presto, we had a band. And we rehearsed together at Tommy's place for some weeks, I think. Possibly as long as six months, I don't know. And that was the first band. What was it called? Flood County. Flood County. Excellent. Uh, Excellent name. (laughs) So where were you playing around Christchurch? Oh, we were just playing things like dances. Yep. Um, And then we discovered pop music, of course. And all that written stuff and all that old stuff just went out the window, um, as you do. Uh, we could still do it when people requested it, which they did. Some of the oldies would request a, a gypsy tap or a, or a waltz or something like that. And so that training stays with you. And, uh, and of course, the, the technical knowledge that you get from your teacher, you know, that helps you to work out what the chords are and mm. the melody line and so forth, arrangements. It's primitive, but, you know, 
you, know, you, you, you get by. And before, before long, we were playing school dances. And then we discovered rock. Mm-hmm. We got a phone call from a guy called Roger Lowry one night, uh, just out of the blue. And he said, you guys need some amplifiers. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm, I've started this little company called Crescendo. And we're testing a line of solid state amplifiers. And, of course, that was new. Because mm-hmm. um, so, everything had been valve up to that point? Yeah, it's all valve technology. And he and he said, well, he said, we've got a line of amps that we're developing. Would you like three free amplifiers? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who wouldn't? <laughs> you know, mind you, they were solid state, uh, which is quite different to a valve. Just you're trying to get that guitar distortion on a solid state amp, and it's not going to distort. And, well, it will distort if you clip it, but it sounds horrible. So, of course, the next step is, oh, how do I cope with this? So I made a fuzz box. Okay. It was called a fuzz box back then. It basically, these days they're calling distortion units, right? Okay. I, I was By that stage I was dabbling with a bit of electronics as well. What were you doing for a job? I don't imagine this is paying the bills completely. Well, of course, it was still at, it was still at school. Ah. Okay. High school. Right. Right, so the parents are driving us everywhere. Jeez, yeah, commitment. And the equipment. Yeah. Yeah, not just our parents, but everybody's parents driving us to gigs and backwards and forwards. And and it wasn't until later that we started getting our own vehicles, of course. So when you leave school, um, I spent a year at varsity. I didn't like it much, really, to be honest. What did your mum do? My mum had a skill. She was an invisible mender. Okay. Now, she could take a hole burnt in a jacket by a cigarette. She could do a weave across the hole from inside, and it was invisible on the outside. She even repaired Robert Muldoon's jacket one day. There you go. She had a little receipt book for every insurance company, yeah. and all these guys kept coming backwards and forwards in the property. I think originally the, the neighbours were thinking, oh, mm. but it's fairly obvious. I mean, they're carrying clothing backwards and forwards, you oh, know. Oh, um, so my dad would be out working as an engineer and yep. she'd be at home. Doing that. You know, I always remember her sitting in the corner of the lounge doing her invisible mending. Yeah. So post that first unsuccessful year at university? Well, yeah, I had a year off. Um, painted the house. Painted the whole house. It's a big rambling place. We were at Wilson's Road by then. Big rambling place, about six bedrooms, two of which were were used for the band. One mm. was a practice room. I don't know how they put up with us. What a racket. Yeah, so by then, of course, we were looking at getting our own vehicles, and we had an old J2 van and um, the other boys, and the lineup had changed and blah, blah, blah. So we were playing rock music, and we were working for a promoter called Robin Moore at the time. He used to promote us as his rock band. Don't know why, because we weren't any good. <laughs> we were horrible. I listened back to some of the recordings of us back then, and I go, oh, God. But anyway, I mean, you know, we played all the the covers of all the, the stuff that the kids wanted, you know, Deep Purple and Jimi Hendrix and all that sort of stuff for the dancers. Yeah, we could still play some of those pop songs and that, but we weren't, our heart wasn't in it. We wanted to, we were full of energy yep. to play that rock music, of course. And, yeah, and we had venues to cater yeah. um, back then, and I can still remember on a Saturday night in Christchurch, you could, oh, 20 pubs, you could do a, a pub cruise and see about 20 different types of bands of all different genres, most of them covers. Um, what do you reckon the rough population of Christchurch back then? 100,000, something like that. So let's say we're about four times. There's probably only about a quarter of those 
pubs well, that I yeah, know of things right have, now. Yeah, things have changed a lot, of course. The drink driving campaign started early on, and there was quite a bit of violence that, uh, associated with it, too much drink yeah. back then. So the cops had to kind of introduce methods of stymieing yep. those situations. But I, I can remember playing in the 80s. I was in a covers group in the 80s at a place called the um, Bush and Courts. Yes. You could fit 1,200 people in there. Wow. I was invited to join this pop group at the time, and I needed the money because of all this gear that I'd been purchasing back then. I, I entered an apprenticeship as a sparky, mm-hmm. and I was, also, I was also doing the NZCE mm-hmm. at the Polytechnic. I think they still call it that, an electrotechnology. And I finished those all together in 75. That must have come in quite handy over the years. Yeah, it was electrotechnology, so electronics, um, you know, the theory behind it and all that stuff. Yeah. I loved those teachers, man. They were really cool. Yeah? Yeah, those boys were all from industry. I was made to the apprentice of the year that year because I finished my NZCE and my trade papers all in the same go, and then I got advanced trade, of course, uh, automatically. Smart cookie. Uh, Bob Stewart, I think, what's it, Bob Stewart from PDL Industries gave me a special certificate that year. Um, and then uh, a few things caved. Uh, I think my girlfriend and I, we split up, and um, I was, I'd finished my apprenticeship. I was getting a bit burnt out, to be honest. Uh, doing a lot of industrial troubleshooting and stuff like that and a friend of mine suggested I take a break and I did I went and joined a covers group in the North Island amazing band actually five of us we could all sing really good covers band I'm going to stop you right there because it is time for some music all right a long and illustrious career we've talked about Flood County Flood County County. then then it was changed to, to Flood and then Flood yep um but you must have had a, a few influences across the years. Have you got a oh, track absolutely. Yes, from somebody? Well, back then, of course, it was groups like Led Zeppelin, mm. Deep Purple, uh, Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, all those kind of guys. Um, that's the stuff that made your blood boil. And they were right on the edge of it, you know. Oh, progressive rock. That's when it first started being, well, it was called sort of acid rock back then because of the connotations. Mm. I don't know if I know. I mean, okay, sure, some of those... Pop st- uh, rock stars have probably taken all sorts of <laughs> everything, <laughs> and of course the Beatles. Yep. Um, so you know they're the the influences from back then, Chicago, those kind of bands, mm. um, playing hard hard edged rock based but very clever stuff. Chicago in particular, um, amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. Tower of Power and all those sort of yep. know, blood, sweat, and tears. All you know, those, well, of course we couldn't do any of that stuff because we didn't have enough people. But that group up north did, you know. We played a bit of that stuff. Then. But that's that's what, yeah, those are the influences back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so what track are we going to hear now? Well, actually, this is one from um, re- relatively recent. It's the 80s, um, a guy called Ian Moss. Ian is probably most notably associated with a group called... Um, Colchism. Colchism, yep. of course, yes. And um, they disbanded back then. The keyboard player, Don had written a whole back catalogue of stuff that they didn't want to play with that band. And he had it sitting there, and him and Ian put all this stuff together. And I did, a friend of mine just said, hey, listen to this. And I went, oh, my God. So it's like, it's way better than that other stuff. Yeah. It's rock music, but it's, oh, it's so clever. Mm-hmm. Don's an amazing writer, yeah. and Ian's an amazing performer. He's got a brilliant singing voice, and he's a hell of a guitar player. Yeah. 
And he's been my favourite all this time. He's just amazing. Yeah. So uh, Ian Moss, uh, the track of his Tangle Town sort of typifies the sort of more commercial edge to his stuff. That's what we're going to play. Tangle Town!
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Annie Van Bussel on Plains FM 96.9. Arnie, uh, just before um, that track from Ian Moss, you were talking about heading up north and joining a um, joining a group. What were they called? They were named after a Queen song, but <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, flick of the wrist. Okay, as you do. <laughs> it's always toilet humour. I was there for about six months. Yeah. We, we were playing covers four nights a week. Big barns up there, huge yep. places. There was yep. a uh, Mayfair Lounge in Hastings, 1,000 people. I mean, those venues, they're kind of still there, but they, they chopped them up now. They put barricades in and split them up into the the drinking bar and the private bar and the small venue. And that's what's happened to a lot of those barns now. They've all been partitioned off. So like the Aranuin pub in Christchurch. And a few of them have been, of course, have been pulled down. But my first proper proper introduction to big crowds uh, back then and uh, just a revelation really mm-hmm. but you know still just playing covers so you know and, you, and rot sets in after about four months you get bored you and know you're still... living, at, living out of a suitcase all yep. you got is a van you know a mattress your, all your equipment you don't know anybody in the town you know some of the boys are Meeting some girls, I suppose. Mm. I'd always been a bit of a head case, a bit too cerebral for that kind of carry-on. I just got bored, basically. So what did you want to do at that point? Well, I'd written a lot of originals. We actually did play a couple of the originals in that band. Mm-hmm. They said, come on, you, you know, because uh, I could still remember the first audition I had with them. We had a, one of the songs led into a jam, and they all fell about laughing because they hadn't had a, a jammy kind of guitar player before. And, of course, we'd, I'd done that with me brothers. We just jammed all the time, you know. Yeah, I just got bored and I came home, tried to get back into the scene here. I set up a group called Night Shift and we were playing covers of groups like Beck, Bogart and A Piece and and, all, and and really smart stuff. And the first lineup lasted about six months. That's the trouble with Christchurch bands. People people move on for one reason or another and we replaced people and you replaced that person and you replaced that person and then you, in the end you just run out of steam. Eventually, I put a, I assembled a group that was quite reasonable. It was called Jezebel. We had a girl singing. Four of us could sing, five-piece. And we were stationed out at the Horsville Tavern for a time, for about nine months. And then Balance was purchased, I think, by DB Breweries. That, and the Balance circuit was closed down, and we lost the gig. And I couldn't get another one for those boys. And that's around the time when I joined this other covers band at the Bush Inn. Mm-hmm. I got a phone call from Eric, and he said, I need a guitar player who can sing and play lead breaks. Yep. Doesn't Larry want to do it? Nah, Larry's burnt out. He doesn't want to do it. Okay. Uh, I'll give it a shot then. Nine months of playing more covers. Oh, God, it's so soul-destroying. This seems like a very unhappy period of time. You're not looking back at these memories fondly, I'm feeling. Oh, of course you have your fun with your friends. I mean, you know, you become friendly with the people in the band. You know, I still, I saw Terry the other day, actually. We have a meeting now of old musos about once every six months, and we meet out at Bailey's. Last time there was about 20 of us there. These guys, they, you know, they pass through time with you, you know. When you're talking about it and going quickly through it, you're talking about the pivotal events. Yep. And most of them tend to be, oh, that happened and then that stopped and then yep. that happened and then that stopped. And But you don't get down to the nitty-gritty and, and talk about some of the fun you had, mm-hmm. right? Having good times. So you wanted, to, you wanted to keep playing, obviously, because you kept joining the bands and you were trying to get the gigs and so on. 
when did the when did the studio when did the decision yeah back in the 70s i'd started mucking about with with tape recorders because my dad's influence and i soon realized that his tape recorder wasn't going to cut it so i bought myself a wee tiak four track i don't know how i got that i think it was bought through holland Mm. right so then you're experimenting at home with your own stuff your own songs but four tracks it's very limiting extremely you know the beatles will tell you yeah and when you start to bounce degrading yeah yeah and And of course that 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 machine's not as high spec as the one at abbey road so eventually, sort of late seventies, I came in, into the the position of a, an eight track test scam unit. It was uh, second hand out of a failed studio in Nelson. Okay. Didn't even have a noise reduction system on it, so I had to build one of those. And of course, you don't have a lot of money. You don't have a lot of dough. So I found some excellent noise reduction circuits and magazines, and I built built my own eight track noise reduction system, and my own mixing console with all sorts of flash stainless steel on the top. I wish I had pictures of it. It was a work of art, this thing. Mm-hmm. And then as you're earning more money with your job and that, you you start to buy a few more bits and pieces. But So what was the job? Sparky. Okay. I'm still so working as a Sparky at this stage. Fantastic. You never stop being a Sparky. There's yeah. all, you're always in demand. I had a, a very good mate of mine, John Russell, would, would feed me work. I'd been in various different companies. I'd done a lot of, I'd built switchboards and done a lot of industrial troubleshooting and blah, blah, blah. So I had a fair amount of uh, electrical knowledge at that point, and I was able to build all sorts of things. My father, being an engineer, he passed a lot of his skills on to me, so I was able to build the cabinetry and and do a lot of that stuff myself, as you do. So late 70s, I I came to the attention of some of my friends and colleagues in the industry, and they, they would encourage me to record them. And that's kind of what started it all off. So 1980, I got married to my first wife, and pretty soon after that, two children. And we opened a studio in a sort of very cheap sort of way. It was ten bucks an hour, and I'd be so I'd be working as a sparky during the day, working sessions at night, and doing the band on the weekends. Okay. So three. Pretty full. Pretty full on. Yeah, and the wife and, and the kids. She, yeah, then she had the children and she got postnatal depression and it really made it my life yeah. difficult because I had to carry the load. And then my father came back from Europe. They'd, they'd left in 80 to go back and catch up with family and stuff and he came back. He didn't like the lifestyle I was encumbered by. And so he, he basically uh, made me an offer that was really outrageous. Um, which I don't really want to talk about, but um, the, the upshot of it was I had to get out out of the house that I was in, and um, we found this current site within a couple of weeks, actually. Couldn't believe my luck. This building here is perfect. I mean, then it really started to hit what kind of economic cost it was going to be, uh, because the bridging loan on this property was running at 27%. Wow. And it wasn't just me. It was a lot of people paid for Rogenomics. And in my case, it meant that I had to up, upscale my activities in every avenue of endeavour, which meant I had to, I was working like a yep. trooper. Yep. Lingering in the background is this health issue that I'm completely unaware of. Yep. And all the stress. Yep. Then the doctors made mistakes, and they couldn't find it, and I'd had this wasting disease that just took me, took me to hell, basically. Celiac disease, it's called. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's a starvation thing. If you eat gluten and you've got celiac disease, you're going to starve to death. 
because it writes off your small bowel and it doesn't absorb. And then all the other things that come along with it. So you're deprived of the nutrients of, in your food and everything that's coming out is just this slurry that makes you feel really sick all the time and you develop all sorts of other problems, hypothyroidism, osteoporosis, um, blah, 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 the list is long. And then you, you basically end up this shambling wreck of a person living on a sickness benefit. So how long did that go on for? Four years. Okay. I had an accident that saved me in the end. I, I, I was out collecting some firewood out in the park for the fire and I stumbled, fell down a hole with, with a log and crushed two vertebrae. And I came to the attention of a better doctor then, uh, Nigel Gilchrist at, at um, Princess Margaret, who couldn't believe that I was osteoporotic. You know, a young man of, what, 37? Jeez. Osteoporotic. And uh, he said, oh, I'm going to do some investigation. We'll send you off to gastro. I said, oh, don't send me back there. I've given up on those pods. He said, I'll supervise. And he had it with him within a month. And then we went back and looked at the previous biopsy, and they were identical. So you're in this, you're in this patch of land? Yep. Um, Basically, the place is closed. Yeah. All the gear's still sitting around. What was this main studio area prior? You said it was Oh, perfect. the building was designed originally as a tailory okay. uh, by one Mr. Delahunt. He built it in the 50s. And what's the um, construction? What's the exterior? Uh, it's, a, it's a concrete pour on the outside, mm-hmm. aluminium roof, yep. um, and a pl- um, tongue and groove floor. Yep. It was an open plan building originally with lots of uh, tongue and groove tables for cutting his cloth. Yep. He was making clothes for people, suits and all sorts of stuff. And you've basically built the control Yeah, I put room. some extra walls in over time yep. and converted it. And it's perfect because the concrete walls provide a fair amount of insulation. Yep. And we put lots of carpet and all sorts of foam upstairs to stop it getting out through the roof and coming in through the roof. Yep. Uh, right next to a railway line. <laughs> Helpful, isn't but it? That, no, I haven't heard a train, though. There's not many trains. Um, so it actually provides a barrier on that side for a hubbub. Because yep. um, now there's a motorway on the other side as well, sure, and lots of trees. So yeah, I got got past all of that. I recovered. I'm going to stop right there. Yeah, on that pivotal yeah, on. pivotal moment. It yep. is time for some more music. Um, yep. I do ask for a favourite track. Favourite and, track. Um, yeah, have you got a particular artist in a song? Yeah, hear? there's another fantastic guitar player. He's dead now, but um, his name's Alan Holdsworth. He was an early shredder. And what, he is unbelievable. What um, sort of um, time period are we talking? Oh, he, he would have been coming into his into his own in the late seventies, eighties, okay. and, and, and that sort of time. Yep. But he kept on working right until recently. Um, he was in groups like Level Forty Two. Okay. Uh, later on, when their lineup had fizzled, and they called in session players to complement their live act. And there's one particular track that blew me away, and I first heard it. It's called Metal Fatigue. <laughs>
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Arnie Van Bussel on Plains FM 96.9. So you had to start making some money? Yeah, we just uh, started cranking the place up, basically. I'd mess with the big tape. 16 tracks 16 by 16 tracks by now. Yeah, we bought all that gear in 1984, okay. just before the, the crisis. Who was coming to you? It was the first 16-track facility, I think, in the South Island. Wow. Certainly in Christchurch, because Kent House had eight. Mm-hmm. And that's enough to do pretty respectable recordings. Um, and this mixing console made by Lewis LeGrow, it's beautiful, fantastic piece of work, um, locally made. And I had a mastering machine over there, the Tascam 2-track. So I had all the right gear to really start you know, making a difference. And it um, wasn't long before we were actually producing some pretty good stuff. So the 90s was a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of rock bands, and I mean, I could cater to anyone really. Yeah. Everything from folk right through to death metal. What did you personally like recording? Progressive rock, of course. I'm a nutter for for prog rock. Mm-hmm. They call it now. Um, Any bands in the '90s that sort of spring to mind? Yeah, well, of course, there were the Exponents. They'd be what people would remember. Those kind of bands. The Exponents were different to everyone else. They were sort of this clean-cut young band that wasn't making punk sound. Okay. Uh, a lot of punk bands over time. The, the names blur into obscurity in my head. And then later on, groups like The Feelers. Mm-hmm. I did some demos for them when they were still at school. So that yep. was that was sort of early ni- yep. uh, mid-90s. Yeah, The Feelers. Uh, Neither World Dancing Toys were 80s. We, we did them on eight eight tracks. And so, just some of the more well-known local bands. Back then, the releases were on cassette um, because we hadn't come to CDs and computers yet in the 90s so everything was on tape still and it wasn't until 98 90, 99 that we could start buying blanks for CDRs mm-hmm. and they were $10 each yes so yep. you, the machine would make a mistake whoops there's $10 <laughs> <laughs> you know and uh, we had to put stickers on them so you print the stickers yep my first PC was built around 97 96 97 and I struggled with it because it was a dog yeah, it was a sequencing computer. It wasn't the computers that we think of now. It was its job is just purely the music sequence, and it's really good. It's still extremely good. It was voted two years ago as still the most stable MIDI platform in the world. Believe it or not, and it still functions perfectly that way because it only Build does them one, to last. The, yeah, it only does one thing at a time, and it doesn't have Windows on it. Yeah, right. So that was so. I was already dabbling with MIDI in the 90s, yep. as everybody else was, because MIDI is a language that, that's a keyboard thing, right? It stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. That's, that's what MIDI is. So the, the keyboard players of the time wanted to be able to, to rack up different keyboards and make them talk to one another. Um, and then it became obvious that, oh, hey, we can interface these with a, a proper sequencer, like a little Atari computer. So then, you know, different computer experts would make uh, apps that would work on the Atari and on a floppy and uh, things like Master Tracks Pro. I still use it, believe it or not, occasionally. <laughs> not so much now, but um, that was the program we were using, Master Tracks Pro, to make all these different sequences. And the song we're going to play off my album was entirely sequenced on an Atari, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And I could synchronize the Atari to my tape recorder. So you'd, you'd put a stripe on one track. And you could run run 32 channels of MIDI alongside 15 tracks of audio. Yeah. Um, Quite sophisticated. 
So how much did the music change between moving from analogue to digital? Not really. Music is music. It doesn't change that much. Um, what was changing was my ability to facilitate the technical side of it, right? So MIDI taught me a lot, MIDI sequencing, because it, you know, accurate. You can be so accurate with MIDI, mm-hmm. but then that's too accurate. So how do you make it not so accurate? How do you humanise it? You know, and then, so you you have to delve into the way that musicians play. And so, the instruments are a bit crap too. Uh, well, it varies. You know, give me a, a, a dungery old guitar and a really good player, and he'll still pull some really good chops out of it. Mm-hmm. So, not always about the instrument. I mean, sure, it makes a difference. Anyway, um, so back then it was still tapes and tapes and the Atari computer. And then in the late 90s, I got my first PC and I started to introduce a little bit of digital editing into the mastering process. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I could see the music on the screen as a WAV file. Yep. And that, you know, when you see things as well as hearing them, there's so much more power there. And the first program that I... I had was one that was bundled with the um, hardware that I purchased at the time called the Echo Layla sound card. I had two of them, eight in, ten out. And you could run the two of them together into a, an XP computer and you could record 16 tracks into a, into a PC for the first time. Yep. That would have been around 1999, right? Reasonably pricey, those sound cards. I think they were about 1500 bucks a pop or something with interfaces that plug into the computer and uh, just getting your head around it. It's a lot cleaner than tape in some ways. Um, you don't get edge flutter off your off your tape. Although that all that went to by and by when I bought some really good tape back in the 90s, BASF. Mm-hmm. That machine's still the best machine in the place. Analog, no bits. Just follows the wave shape perfectly right up past 20 kilohertz, right? Um, and this is why some people are still using it. But is this the uh, the, the tape recorder, track? the sixteen track? Yeah. yeah. So eventually, I phased out the tape recorder uh, around two thousand and two, something like that. Mm-hmm. I was loath to do that. It was such a beautiful machine, but I couldn't do any editing on it. So, in the last eighteen years, have you used it? No. No. Oh, sometimes somebody will come along with a tape that's multi-track from back then and say, can you play this thing and put it into digital? And that's what it gets used for yep. now, just playback, yep. playing multi-track tapes into digital. Mm-hmm. So, no, people can't afford the price of the tape anymore. It's really expensive now. Mm. So you've said how well the 16-track is able to follow the uh, the wave. Mm. Um, is digital able to do, do that work as well now? I'm getting there, but the, the thing is you need a really fast computer. You can record at 192 kilohertz now, 32, but that's getting close. The problem is accuracy at the high frequencies. Mm -hmm. If you're only sampling at 44.1 kilohertz and you're expecting to record a 20 kilohertz tone, you put a sine wave into a computer at that frequency, it's not going to come back as a sine wave very well because you're only sampling about two points on the the curve, Mm -hmm. right? And so the top end gets distorted because there's not enough sampling points, right? That's, tape doesn't do that. The smallest sampling point is a molecule. <laughs> you know? Okay. You see what I'm saying? It's okay. magnetic, yeah. right? So if you want to increase the accuracy at the top end, you've got to increase your, your sampling rate. So 192, I think, is the max at the moment, but it'll go to twice that. But then your file sizes get huge. They're, they're enormous. 
So would you recommend that folks should be recording at 192? There are studios in the world that do, as a matter of course. They do, yeah, the top-end studios. And they have uh, water-cooled computers to cope with it. True. Um, If somebody wants 96, I'll give it to them. Yep. Beyond that, the file size has just become unmanageable. Yep. In the local scene, I'm talking about, you know, and you give it to your client, he can't even play it, let alone do anything with it. So it ends up back in that situation where you need a studio to to, to manage it. So a lot of the time you're just recording at 44.1, 16-bit, although mostly around here it's 32-bit. And then if someone wants 96, we'll run it at 96. The the computer will cope with it. Is there any particular kind of output device, I'm talking whether it's stereo or, I don't know, somebody listening on their phone or something that you sort of focus on trying to make the recording sound good for? Is there any sort of benchmark device? At the end of the day, it's about the performance. Okay. All right, so if you want to do justice to the performance, like there's a guy I work, worked with last year, John Hooker's his name, a fine guitar player, and he's using these beautiful Martin guitars, you know, and you, you want that signal to go in faithfully, as, as faithfully as possible. So you use the best microphones that you've got uh, in a quiet room and you wait for John to get into form. You know, he's got to have his cup of tea and his smoke. And when he's feeling good and when everything's working properly, you're trying to capture that, that sound accurately. And that's the, the bottom line for any recording studio that's professional, mm. right? Um, so it's about the microphones, the quality of the microphones, the quality of the performance, and the quality of the instruments they're using. Um, the, the platform that you're using is relatively irrelevant. You know, you can argue the toss about bit rates and sample rates and all that sort of stuff. The computers encode and then decode, and, and you just hope that it's going to work well and, and, and it's going to sound good. Um, so you shouldn't have to worry about the platform. Okay. Right? So yep. most of the time you're worried more about how the performer is feeling yeah. and how his instruments are working. Yeah. Setting them up, it becomes a bit psychological. I mean, you know, you've never met before. They're nervous as hell, you can tell. Uh, it's up to you to chill them out somehow. Gets the best out of them. Right? So that, there's a psychological element to it, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it's somebody new and you've never met them before, and you spend the first 10 minutes trying to work out how they tick, right? How am I going to chill this person out? And sometimes they're not, sometimes they're fine, but yep. sometimes they're shaking, right? Cup of tea, you know, tell a stupid joke, get them to smile, you know, sit them down. I don't have the decor looking too slick. You know, people tell me, don't change anything. It's fine. When we walk in here, it feels like home. And you look at some of the pro studios overseas. I watched the doco once with Pete Gabriel, and I looked. I wasn't looking at him. I was looking at what was behind them, and it looked just like here. I felt better about myself. Um, but, you know, because people feel relaxed in, in environments that are conducive, right? And, and a lot of that's the person as well. Yeah. So trying to be friendly and open and... And looking after them, and once they understand you're on, you're in, you're part of the, you know you're on their side basically. Yeah. Uh, hard to describe in English, really. It's a sort of a, an empathy, hmm. um, but it that takes a while to learn. I mean, when I was first started, I was green as hell. I didn't know, you know. And ten years in, I was crook, and then another five years on, I'm starting to learn this stuff, you know. 
And people people now, they say, oh, I just love this place. I just love the atmosphere. I just love coming here, you know. And then the red button goes on. They know they're recording. <gasps> Freeze. The recording huddle, the recording cringe. Um, and I go, don't worry. I can fix it, man. And this is where the editing tools come in, you know, because they don't have to do a perfect take. It doesn't have to be 100%. Can be about eighty-five, and I'll fix the rest, as long as it's close, mm-hmm. right? So they might do a really good take, and there'll be a few little issues here and there, and I'll just go through with the computer and fix them up. So obviously, with all the production across the years, um, uh, there's been the covers bands, and there's been writing from a very early age, well, at least you know, your teens, those formative years. Is there a track of yours that we can hear right now? Yes, uh, this is off my first album, uh, which was finished in nineteen ninety-eight. And it's a song called Bind Me to Truth. I was working on an album. I was having a bit of trouble with sleep at the time. And so I'd finished my session in the evening and worked through it all about three. Exhaustion. Then I'd go to bed and wake up at seven. And it spawned an album, basically. Um, Quite a cathartic exercise. There were some things going on. Um, But, yeah, it's a song about love. And it was... uh, yeah, sequenced entirely. The rhythm section's entirely sequenced on the Atari computer and then it's synchronised with the tape recorder and then on goes the guitars, the electric guitars and the vocal on top of that. Um, yeah, and that was the way we, we kind of put some things together back then. Mm. Let's 
This has been Garden of Sound, and a big thanks to miniquiz.com for sponsoring the show. You can find out more about Arnie and Night Shift Studios by heading to gardenofsound.nz and clicking on his image on the front page. Keep your ears peeled for part two of the show sometime later this year. Love to have you back again next week for another edition of the show. In the meantime, keep well, keep listening, and keep playing. Inohora. <laughs>